0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dr. Kristen Neff. Kristen is a professor of human development and culture at the University of Texas, Austin, and she has practiced Buddhist meditation since 1997. Kristen and her family were the subject of the recent book and documentary, The Horse Boy, which documented her family's adventure with autism. A self-proclaimed, self-compassion evangelist, Kristen Neff loves spreading the good word of self compassion. With Sounds True, Kristen created an audio program called Self Compassion Step by Step The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, where she presents the clinical evidence that self compassion is a master key to greater happiness, well being, and resilience. And she presents proven techniques and exercises for cultivating this pivotal quality. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Kristen and I spoke about three pillars or components of self-compassion. We talked about how to take a self-compassion break when we need it, and also the importance of recognizing our common humanity in the midst of a difficult experience that we might feel is unique to us. Here's my very helpful and illuminating conversation with Kristen Neff. There are several different aspects of your work on self-compassion that I want to explore together in this conversation. And the first is I know you spent quite a bit of time and energy and, and resources actually studying the differences between self-esteem and self-compassion. How are they the same? How are they different? Do we get certain benefits or negatives from one or the other? And I'd like to start right there if you could talk about that and the research you did into this question.
1: Absolutely. The reason I got interested in the differences between self-esteem and self-compassion is because I was doing a um, two years of postdoctoral study with one of the country's leading self-esteem researchers and I was finding about all the potential downsides of the pursuit of high self-esteem at the same time that in my personal life I was practicing self-compassion and seeing all its benefits. So when I got my job uh, as a professor at UT Austin, I really wanted to see if I could conduct research differentiating the two. So in terms of some of the theoretical differences, I'm defining self-esteem here as a positive evaluation of self-worth, the global judgment that I'm a good person or I'm a bad person or somewhere in between. And for years, as you know, self-esteem was seen as the ultimate marker of psychological well-being, and there were thousands of books and articles written on it and movements in the schools to raise children's self-esteem. Uh, the problem, um, I should say, the reason people are promoting self esteem is because it's strongly linked to psychological well being. So people who have higher levels of self esteem are less depressed, less anxious, are generally happier than people who hate themselves. The problem with self esteem is not if you have it, but how you get it. Okay, there are healthy and unhealthy ways to get self esteem. So, for instance, in our culture, We have to be special and above average to have high self-esteem, right? And if you think about that, that's logically impossible, right? We can't all be special and above average. So what happens is it sets up this uh, process of social comparison where we're always trying to feel a little better than others and see others as a little bit worse than ourselves that can lead to things like narcissism. There's an epidemic of narcissism in our culture, people really taking the need to be above average very seriously, Mm -hmm. that uh, appears to be related to the self-esteem movement in the schools. Uh, Self-esteem is also uh, contingent on things like looking a certain way or being successful in business or athletics. And that contingency means that we only have self-esteem when we succeed, That it deserts us when we fail. So, the idea of self compassion doesn't have these problems because it's not about judging yourself positively, it's about merely relating to yourself kindly. All right, so um, in terms of some of the research differentiating the two, what we find is self compassion is associated with well being just like high self esteem, right? It's linked to less depression, anxiety, stress greater happiness, optimism, etc., But it's not linked to the same problems associated with self-esteem. It's not linked with narcissism. It's linked to less social comparison. And this is really important. It's not contingent on things like success, successful performance, social approval, or perceived attractiveness. So that means self-compassion can step in either when you succeed or when you fail. It's there to catch us, even when things aren't going well, when we feel inadequate or we fail in some way. So overall, self-compassion is a much more um, robust predictor of well-being. You might say a more helpful friend who's not going to desert you uh, when you need it most the way self-esteem does.
0: Now, you mentioned that there's a link between the way we've approached self-esteem in the school system and potentially the development of narcissism in people. How is it that we've approached self-esteem in the school system? Well, um,
1: and this is, by the way, it's a very well-meaning endeavor because of all the research showing that low self-esteem is so problematic. But when teaching kids to have high self-esteem, there wasn't a lot of care put into how this is done. So I'm telling kids constantly that they're special, that they're wonderful, that they're great, having them, you know, um make stickers. I am I'm great, I'm the best, right? Number one. Uh the, the the emphasis is really on helping kids to judge themselves positively. And uh there's a great book by Jean Twenge called Generation Me that really ties this type of um kind of unconditional praise given to children with the current epidemic of narcissism. So she finds that the last 25 years, narcissism levels among college undergraduates have just been going up and up. Um, So that's, again, the problem with having people feel they need to be above average to feel good about themselves.
0: Now, if you could wave a magic wand and self-compassion could be the Name of the game. Uh, what we teach in schools—that's what we could be focused on instead of building "quote unquote" self-esteem. What would that look like?
1: Ah, well, that's. Um, oh, that'd be a wonderful dream. <laughs> and uh, several people are thinking about how we might actually do this. But really, it's about uh, helping children. It would be about helping children to relate to themselves kindly, to be supportive, to be encouraging. So you want kids to feel good about themselves, but not because they're above average or better than others, but simply because they are human being worthy of care and kindness and respect. So this would mean helping children to be self-compassionate uh, when they fail, letting them know that it's only human to fail, but that if they give the, themselves support and encouragement, they can uh, pick themselves up and try again. You know, lessons like, Uh, Failure is a great learning experience. Failure doesn't mean that you're a failure, only that, you know, this behavior, this this time you fail, but the the next time hopefully you'll succeed. Um, It also means that uh, we would help children to um, really uh, understand that imperfection is part of the shared human experience. Oftentimes, we feel like something has gone wrong when we fail, or we feel inadequate in some way. Uh, but if we taught children that this is, you know, that they aren't alone in their imperfection, and that fact imperfection or failure is actually a chance to connect with other people, um, it'd be a really powerful buffer against some of the isolation experience uh, in school. It would also do things like uh, help with the problem um, of bullying right? Why do kids bully each other? Well, partly to raise their self-esteem. But when you emphasize the fact that we're all in this together, we're all human beings worthy of kindness and care, uh, hopefully that would also decrease the tendency for kids to bully each other.
0: I've heard that bullying is actually something that's quite on the rise and quite a problem in the school system.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, And there are many reasons for it. But we know that trying to get social approval is one of the reasons. Um, unfortunately, in middle school, kids who are successful bullies, which means picking on someone who's unliked and maybe a bit weird, they tend to get social approval from others. So I really think that if compassion was emphasized as a value in the schools, both compassion for self and others, hopefully it would mitigate some of those tendencies um, and really help people feel good about themselves uh, for, for better reasons, that because they're kind, caring people and not because they're better than others.
0: So here we are, we're addressing our conversation to the next generation, but here in our generation, having grown up in our education system, people like you and I find ourselves in a milieu where there's so much, you could call it comparing mind all the time, so much comparison of you know, you're better than me in this, you look better, this looks better, this looks worse. Talk a little bit about how self-compassion can help us deal with this comparing mind that we seem to have.
1: Right. Well, the wonderful thing about self-compassion, as I said, is self-compassion connects us with other people in the shared human experience. It's not um, contingent on being better than others uh, in any domain. In appearance, for instance, women um, are most likely to invest their sense of self worth in their appearance. Self compassion, again, says your worthiness is not dependent on how you look, it's really just dependent on being a human being. And in fact, the research shows that self compassion is linked to uh, more positive body image than people who lack self compassion. So, you know, we don't really need to compare ourselves to others to feel special and above average with self-compassion. As a matter of fact, being average, being an average human being, is also also perfectly fine, right? So, um, you know, the the motivation or the driving force of self-compassion is not to be better than other people. The driving force of self-compassion is to thrive and to be happy and to help alleviate our own suffering. So self-compassion is strongly linked to motivation, um, you know, making efforts to do our best. But we do so not because we're inadequate or worse than others if we, you know, um, if we fail. We do it because we care and want to be happy. And then therefore, therefore, this type of motivation is much more sustainable over time.
0: I guess where I'm going in this part of our conversation is it seems to me that comparing and judging ourselves in relationship to other people. And as you say, needing to be special and above average. Everybody feels that in Western culture to some degree or another, to some extent. And yet here, self-compassion, is now becoming a very more popular and mainstream idea. And I wonder if it's the antidote, if you will, for this, maybe we could call it just disease of one-upmanship that we've all been immersed in. I wonder if you see it that way.
1: Yeah, well, I think people are recognizing the incredible suffering caused by the striving for perfection that's found in our culture. Um, whether it's kids who feel like they have to get A's to, you know, be worthy and the parent's putting pressure on them to succeed. Um, it seems like the standards for what counts as successful work performance keeps going up and up. You know, we have to be more productive than ever. We've got to work more hours than, other, than ever. And I think people are just really feeling the stress of being in such a constantly competitive situation. Um, as part of that competition that that need for social comparison, I think society's becoming more isolated. You know we're less focused on building community and more focused on individual success. So I think that is one of the reasons people are more open to the idea of self compassion they're they're tired of suffering, and this is a way to again really foster and encourage uh, ourselves to to thrive and be our best, but it doesn't require successfully competing or being better than other people.
0: Now, you teach three different core components that self-compassion contains, and I wonder if you could briefly talk us through these three core components that you see are contained in self-compassion.
1: Right. Okay. So the first component is perhaps the most obvious, and that is treating yourself with kindness, care and care as opposed to harsh self-judgment. So really being a a good friend to yourself. I mean, if we think about how we speak to ourselves, we often say mean, cruel things to ourselves, things we would never say to other people we cared about. You know, we're actually usually meaner to ourselves than people we don't even like very much. So with self-compassion, we're kind, supportive, just like we would be to a good friend. And also uh, the self-kindness component refers to the fact that we actively soothe and comfort ourselves when we're in distress. Just like with a friend, if they're upset, we give them a hug. The same thing with ourselves when we're upset or feeling bad about ourselves, we do what we can to make ourselves feel better about it, to um, really support ourselves in difficult times. And the second component mm-hmm. I alluded to before, and that's this sense of common humanity. So, self compassion recognizes the imperfection is part of the shared human experience um typically uh, like i said before we feel isolated when we're imperfect or when things go wrong as if you know i signed up for the everything will go swimmingly until the day i die plan and i want my money back if i fail in some way this is abnormal this is not the plan i signed up for and at that type of uh those feelings of isolation when we fail or feel inadequate are very, very damaging. So, um, you know, and a nice analogy for why common humanity is part of uh, self-compassion is when we feel compassion for others, right? When we feel compassion for others, we see there's a fellow human being who's suffering there, but for the grace of God go I, and that differentiates compassion from pity. The same thing with self compassion. We recognize that imperfection is part of being human, and therefore we don't pity ourselves, feel sorry for ourselves when we suffer. Rather, we just recognizing that you know this is we're all in the same boat. This is part of the plan we signed up for. And then the third component may be a little less obvious, but it's very important, and that's mindfulness. All right, so mindfulness, as I'm sure your listeners know, refers to, um, to the ability to be with our experience as it is in a judgmental way. Uh, unfortunately, when that experience is painful when we have painful thoughts and emotions, our natural reaction is to turn away from that pain, either to um, suppress it and avoid it or else to try to resist it. I get really upset about the fact that this painful experience is happening. Well, if we avoid the fact that we're suffering, if we aren't aware of it, or if we're just fighting against it, we can't give ourselves compassion. We have to say, this is a moment of suffering. We have to accept and acknowledge that we're really having a hard time in order for our hearts to respond. And also important, uh, mindfulness is a type of balanced awareness that, that neither belittles and um, you know, diminishes nor exaggerates our suffering, you know, getting lost in a real drama about how bad things are. Again, if we exaggerate how bad things are, then we can be lost in the drama of self-pity. Mindfulness, on the, on the other hand, sees things as they are, no more and no less, And that's really what allows us to respond self-compassionately when we're suffering.
0: Now, I I want to dig in a little bit more to each one of these components, because there's really a lot here. Starting with the first one, self-kindness, soothing ourselves, speaking kindly to ourselves. You know, I think this is something that many, many people find difficult. So here it is, you're you're describing, yes, you know, obviously self-compassion, This is one of the things, but yet it's hard for people. And I'm wondering if you could help us. What are some of the techniques and tips you've discovered that really help with this self-kindness and self-soothing?
1: Well, the thing is we all know how to be kind and we all know how to soothe and comfort in times of distress. It's just that we're used to doing that with other people. I mean, most of us have the experience of close friendships or romantic partners or children to whom we're very kind, caring, and supportive. You know, we know what to say when they're when they're feeling bad. So we have the skills. The problem is we just don't give ourselves permission to use them with ourselves. And hopefully at some point we can talk about, you know, the blocks, to the self-compassion. Uh, there are many of those. But... Um, because we know how to use these skills towards others, I really suggest that people, um, when, when they're having a difficult time, imagine they were talking to a friend when they were talking to themselves. You know, asking yourself, would I say this to someone I cared about? What would I say to someone I cared about? And then try to use that language instead. Um, there's also exercises like writing a letter to yourself from the perspective of an ideally compassionate friend, right? So if you were this, you know, ultimately compassionate person and you were looking at yourself as an outsider and saw, you know, recognize the situation you were going through, what would you say? You know, what kind of words of support, encouragement, love, acceptance would you give to, to someone you cared about? Write a letter from this perspective, maybe put it away for a little while, and then come back and read it. So we, we really do have the skills. It's just remembering and allowing ourselves to use them with ourselves. Another thing that's very, very important and is related to how we treat our friends is physical gestures of kindness, comfort, and soothing. You know, putting our hands over our heart or maybe giving ourselves a little hug or a little, a little stroke on the face. Um, these types of gestures automatically trigger in us Uh, the response of being soothed and comforted. And uh, I could go more into that later, but basically it's because all mammals respond to warm, soothing touch. So when we do that for ourselves, our bodies also respond. Uh, And it's a very powerful, immediate gesture of kindness. And our bodies can go there sometimes even when our minds can't.
0: Mm -hmm. That's very helpful. I'm imagining, though, let's say somebody's listening and they said, well, you know, you said all of us can imagine being kind to a friend. And on occasions I can, but often when my friends come and they share with me their problems, I actually feel kind of critical and judgmental. And I I try to be helpful, but I kind of move to the counselor position or the advisor position. But inside I feel critical or I feel like, huh, my friend's suffering. Maybe I'm better than my friend. I mean, how would you help this person, someone like what I'm describing? (laughs) Okay, well, if that's the
1: case, maybe modeling yourself on how you treat your friends this isn't the best idea. You know, it might be that um, opening your heart to compassion more generally is would be the wisest course of action, right? So really um, thinking about how can I be kind and supportive? Um, you know, what what are my true values? Is my true value to be better than other people? or is my true value to strive to be perfect um or is my true value care connectedness and love uh, you know and i suppose when it comes down to it if someone doesn't value care connect- connectedness and and love it's going to be harder to um you know to be compassionate for self or others but I do think that when that is the case, often it's because of early childhood experiences which taught us that we had to close our hearts to both ourselves and others in order to survive and keep safe. So sometimes, if there are real blocks to compassion, either for others or oneself, it means that some healing needs to occur. Uh, you know, So if that is the case, then... You may want to, you know, people may want to think about finding some of that healing uh, and that will help them open their heart both to themselves
0: and to the people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I quite like this idea of touching ourselves, uh, being petting (laughs) ourselves. I don't know. You know, the idea of bringing a hand to the heart, uh, Mm -hmm. that's powerful. At the same time, I'm not sure I would. Imagine myself doing that in public places very often. Although maybe if it was a different kind of world, I wouldn't feel so nervous about that. I mean, do you have suggestions for ways that we could pet ourselves, if you will? Maybe it's on the arm or something like that, where we won't get a lot of strange attention.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I call it the surreptitious self hug. Yeah. So when you just fold your arms in a non-obvious manner. But give yourself a little squeeze and if you do it with the intention to soothe and comfort, like a little signal of, Hey, I'm here for you, I know this is hard right now, but you have my support. It can also be very effective. So yeah, don't don't put your hands on your heart if you're sitting with your boss thinking, Oh my god, this man's making me suffer or this woman's making me suffer Give yourself the little surreptitious self hug and it'll still be effective but won't get you in trouble.
0: And Kristen, in familiarizing myself with your work, you talked about how doing this kind of uh, self-soothing at the physiological level, that it actually helps us in terms of releasing oxytocin in the system. And I wonder if you can talk about that. I think that might be helpful for
1: people. Yeah. Okay. So we have uh, two main physiological systems designed to keep us safe. The first is the one we tend to tap into more often, and that's the threat defense system. Okay? So um, all animals, including reptiles, have the threat defense system so that when uh, something or someone is attacking us, our amygdala gets triggered, we release cortisol and adrenaline, and we go into fight or flight mode. Now, the system evolved very effectively to um, prevent physical harm. The problem with human beings in modern times is typically the threats are not to our bodily cells, but to our self-concept. So when we see a problem in ourselves, we attack the problem, i.e., we attack ourselves. And then, of course, with self-criticism it's a double whammy because we are both the attacker and the attacked. So self-criticism... Um, really, it's very damaging in terms of all the cortisol it releases. Such that eventually, if you're a, a really habitual self-critic, you'll eventually become depressed because your body shuts down in, in response to all this stressful activation. Now, unfortunately, fortunately, we aren't just reptiles; we're often, also mammals. So, what happened with, when mammals evolved? is um, because mammalian young are born so mature, which allows them to eventually be more advanced than reptiles, um, we needed a system in place that would keep mammalian young next to the mother so that they could survive long enough to be successful adults. So um, most mammals have the caregiving system physiologically, which means that infants are soothed and comforted and they feel safe uh, when they are uh, receive warm touch, softness, and soothing, gentle vocalizations, you know, just imagine a little kitten curled up next to you know its mommy, and the mommy purring and cuddling with the cat. Right. So most mammals have this to some extent. So when we receive warm touch or this kind of these soft vocalizations, our bodies release oxytocin and opiates, and what happens is we. Deactivate the sympathetic nervous system is what, which is what arouses us for fight or flight mode, and instead activate, activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which soothes us, calms ourselves down, reduces cortisol, and again releases these kind of feel-good, um, all safe and well hormones. Right. So when we touch ourselves, especially, you know, when we touch ourselves in a gentle way and feel the warmth of our hands, uh, you, you can feel it almost immediately. Your body responds. It calms down. Uh, it feels less activated. It feels It feels very, very safe and comforting. And that's why I really suggest that physical gestures of affection should be used as much as possible along with words that are kind and supportive rather than uh, harshly judgmental.
0: I particularly like this idea of this physical Kindness towards ourselves because, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this, that even if we're feeling kind of hard-hearted or we're not quite sure we can be kind towards ourselves, we could make the physical gesture and it would have its impact even if our mind hadn't quite gotten on board.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oftentimes our minds are filled with the storyline of what happened or how horrible I am. So making the physical gesture might relax us enough to therefore be able to have some awareness of what we're doing to ourselves and even change our internal dialogue. Um, But even if we can't change our internal dialogue, just that gesture of support and affection will make it easier uh, to bear and to get through difficult moments. Uh, Like I say, I teach workshops on self-compassion all the time, and most people find that these physical gestures of affection, especially when they're combined with, you know, supportive words, I even suggest to people if they feel comfortable using terms of endearment, like, you know, darling or, you know, sweetheart, (laughs) if it feels comfortable. But I'm a mother, and a lot of mothers uh, who are used to using that language to soothe and comfort their child Find that when they say things like that toward themselves, especially with a gesture like putting your hands over your heart, it can just be a really powerful way for you to feel comforted and supported um, and compassionate towards yourself.
0: Do you have words that are sort of your go to words that you use with yourself?
1: Yeah, I do, actually. Um, And I I teach this as part of what's called the self-compassion break, something you can do when things are really difficult or you're really feeling bad about yourself, you failed in some way. And uh, the self-compassion break does start with some physical gesture of affection, like hands over your heart. uh, Or some people actually feel most comforted by their hands on their belly or maybe even gently cradling their face. And then for me I use words that really evoke the three main elements of self compassion. So the first thing to say is this is a moment of suffering. Okay. It's so important. Oftentimes we're so lost in again the storyline of what's happening or the storyline of how inadequate we are. We aren't even aware of the fact of, you know, this is a really, really hard moment. So reminding ourselves, this is a moment of suffering. And suffering is part of life, right? It's part of the shared experience. Or you might say, I'm not alone in my suffering. So reminding ourselves that suffering isn't an isolating experience. Nothing has gone wrong. This is part of the human experience. This is a moment in which we can connect ourselves with others. Um, So this is a moment of suffering, Suffering is part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I give myself the compassion I need. So again, reminding ourselves of what we really need is compassion, kindness, and support. Uh, So I really tell people to come up with some variation of these words that feels comfortable and natural to memorize them. And then when you're in a difficult situation or you're experiencing emotional pain, um, they come up kind of like a mantra, right? They automatically kick in to remind you, oh, yeah, this is how I need to orient myself to this experience, and it really helps people cope.
0: I'm curious, in your own experience, how much of the time would you say that works for you, like 90% of the time? I mean, I'm not a researcher, but I do like numbers. Uh, I'm just curious, <laughs> what percentage?
1: <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, I've never actually quantified it, but I know that pretty much... Whenever I remember to do it, it works right. The problem is of when I forget to do it, even now right i've been practicing self compassion for fifteen years. Um, I still occasionally forget, oh yeah, this is a moment of suffering. I get lost in the in the situation as well, but I think you know more quickly, I remember, oh yeah, that's right, what I need is self compassion. And the second I touch my body kindly and just remind myself, either either, either using those particular phrases or just saying, you know, um, I'm sorry, this is so hard right now, darling. I'm, I'm here for you. It's okay. Uh, I find it almost every time immediately helps. Now it doesn't mean the pain's going to go away. It's not like you put your hand on your heart and poof, you're happy and <laughs> skipping and smiling. It just means that. Um, you really feel supported and cared for when things are difficult, and that really gives you um, what you need to cope with the situation and be more resilient. Um, I, I really can't think of a time where I did that and it didn't help, as long as I was sincere about my efforts to give myself compassion. Mm-hmm.
0: you're listening to insights at the edge produced by sounds true if you're interested in listening to previous episodes of insights at the edge they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program for more information please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access and now back to insights at the edge Okay, I want to move on to this second core component of self-compassion, connecting to our common humanity, especially when something's happening and we're upset, seeing that this is a universal situation. And in this discussion of our common humanity, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your own situation Uh, You write about it in your book and also talk about it in the audio series, Compassion, Step by Step. And it's been documented in a film about your son, Rowan, and his autism, a film called Horse Boy. And my question is, here, you know, different things happen. And we could say, well, yes, many, 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 many different people have experienced suffering like this. But I can imagine having a child and discovering that your child is autistic, a response might be, well, actually only a small percentage of the population has to go through something as difficult and as challenging as this. So how is it that you've been able to understand the common humanity in your struggle, a struggle which seems in some ways difficult, particularly difficult, if you will?
1: Well, uh, it's, very, it's funny. I have a very clear memory shortly after my son was diagnosed of being at the park, and Rome was maybe about three, and there was all these other kids playing, and they were playing happily and interacting, and Rome was kind of you know, by himself and kind of babbling, not really talking and doing these repetitive movements. And I started feeling like, oh, God, why can't I have a normal child and this is so unfair? So I, started, I did start feeling isolated um, in that experience. But then it struck me, you know, here are all these other kids and they're all going to grow up. And the experience of having troubles or um, challenges with your children are actually so common. I mean, people, people have their kids commit suicide. Right or or become drug addicts, or uh, really act out and, I don't know, get thrown in jail. or There's just so many things that could happen. So it wasn't that I was belittling my experience and saying, oh, it's not as bad as it could be. But when I remembered that so many people have troubles and challenges with raising their kids, it just made me feel less alone. Yet yeah, maybe it wasn't autism, but it could easily be something else. Right, or even even parents with kids who aren't, don't have obvious problems. Maybe they kill themselves um, with stress and trying to, you know, be successful. That there's so many kids who are so pressured to be perfect and get the perfect grades so they can go to college, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so really, uh, remembering that suffering is part of the shared human experience. And maybe how much we suffer, or the kind of suffering we have varies absolutely but that that was one of the buddha's basic truths right one of his first discoveries is that life for everyone entails suffering you know even people who seem to have it all well they get sick they age and they die right so um it's so important for us to remember that so we don't feel isolated and alone and separate from our fellow human beings when things become difficult.
0: So do you actually think it's possible to tap into this sense of other people know the kind of pain I'm feeling. This is a shared human experience no matter what our suffering might be like, no matter what is happening.
1: Right. Well, again, if we don't we don't want to expect that other people experience the exact same situation, I mean, usually there are a lot of people experiencing your exact same situation, but the focus shouldn't be on how you're suffering, but just the fact that you are suffering. I mean, for some people, I don't know, they get cancer. Other people, um, something happens to their child. Other people, they struggle with mental health issues. Other people, they struggle with obesity. Um, You know, there there are so many (laughs) ways in which human beings suffer and struggle. It really is part of life. You know, I don't know. I suppose, again, there's a handful of people without a lot of suffering in their lives, but they're definitely the very, very small minority. So just remembering that, I don't know, (laughs) if it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know that kind of uh, attitude not not to be depressed or pessimistic but just to remember that suffering is part of life it's okay it's normal it's part of um how we learn and grow if everything was perfect life would be boring wouldn't it <laughs> do we really all want to be ken and barbie dolls and have everything happen great all the time i mean that's part of what makes life rich and interesting is the fact that we do have challenges. But that also means we often overcome those challenges or at least rise to the occasion to be courage- courageous and really you know, open to our pain with uh, this heartfelt quality that you know, that in many ways makes for this very rich and lovely, though bittersweet, experience.
0: What I'm flashing on are individuals who perhaps feel uniquely isolated and just so upset with their particular situation. And yet, as I'm listening to, I'm seeing how beneficial it would be if there was a way that people could crack open and break open that idea that their unique suffering is their sort of personal kind of cocooned predicament. And how can people who you think are in that kind of situation break out of it to see that they share something with other people? Because often when you're suffering like that, do you know what I mean? The feeling is, I'm alone in this room, and that's where the person's sort of stuck, spinning around with that experience.
1: Right. Um, And part of that is because all negative emotions, their purpose, actually their evolutionary purpose is to narrow the focus of our attention, right? And you, you can see why that tendency evolved. If we if we're if we see some negative something negative or we get negative information, usually it means there's a threat. So we've got to really narrowly focus on that threat in order to escape it and survive. You know, in contrast, the purpose of positive emotions. One of the reasons they evolved is it signals, oh, things are safe. That allows us to broaden our perspective and then start looking for opportunities. You know, oh, is that fresh water over there? Are those berries edible? So um, what happens when we, this is so beautiful, when we embrace our suffering with compassion, we're not only making ourselves feel safer and reducing our sense of threat, but the feeling of love and connectedness inherent in self-compassion, these are actually positive emotions so self compassion reduces negative emotions, enhances positive emotions, and that allows us to be less narrowly focused to take to see the bigger picture and part of that bigger picture is to recognize our common humanity now of course, your question was, how do you help people who are stuck?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, they have to want to be helped right you can't force people to be more self compassionate, but I do think. That by modeling self-compassion, maybe especially the children, um, by discussing the the topic more in our culture, you know, people like you promoting the word, um, having this be uh, really a, a thought that this is a possible way to treat yourself, that a lot of people will say, whoa, you know, gosh, I'm really sick of suffering this way. I'm really sick of constantly criticizing myself. I'm sick of feeling so alone. You know, maybe there's a hope for relating to myself and my life in a slightly different way. I can tell you, I get emails, several emails a day, people saying, you know, that the self-compassion work has radically changed their outlook on life. So it is possible, Um But if we don't talk about it and spread the good word, so to speak, which is, you might say, what my life has been devoted to, then people don't even know this is a possibility.
0: Now, I want to move on to the third component. But before we do, I'm curious to know these three components, self-kindness, discovering the common humanity in our suffering, and mindfulness, which we'll talk about next. How did you come to these three pillars of self-compassion? if you will. How did you narrow it down to just these three?
1: Right. Um, Well, so if I'm perfectly honest about my journey, what happened is the way I learned about self-compassion was uh, through Buddhist meditation. I started practicing meditation when I was going through a very stressful time, uh, finishing up my PhD at UC Berkeley, You know, and when in Rome, do as the Romans, uh, when in Berkeley, learn to meditate, right? So it seemed like a good thing to do. And, uh, you know, the woman who led the group really talked about the importance of self-compassion, and that's what started me on this journey. And then when I got to UT Austin and I um, decided I wanted to do research on it, the first thing I had to do as an academic was operationally define self-compassion so that therefore I could measure it and start to do research on it. And at that point, no one really uh, discussed self-compassion in the academic literature, but there was discussion of it in uh, a lot of Buddhist books, and and probably also in, in books from other traditions. It's just that, you know, this is a particular tradition that I was familiar with. So I read things like Sharon Salzberg's Loving Kindness and Jack Kornfield's A Path With Heart and tried to see, well, what are the basic elements necessary to give ourselves compassion. And, um, you know, that's that's the three I came up with. You have to be mindful of your suffering. In order to give yourself compassion, you need to recognize that this is part of the shared human experience so you don't get lost in you know, self-pity. And then you need to respond with an open heart, with this sense of kindness. Um, you know, who knows, there might be some other elements... <laughs> part of compassion that, um, you know, that I don't talk about. But these seem to be the three main ones, um, you know, at least, at least that I seem to find in all the writings, I, all the research I did and reading I did uh, on compassion in the Buddhist literature.
0: Okay. And then talking about mindfulness, you said, well, many of your listeners are probably familiar with mindfulness. And that may be true, but I'm also noticing that there are more and more definitions that are being offered, and in, in some ways the whole field of mindfulness feels to me like it's getting more confusing, not clear. So <laughs> I, I, I'd love to know yeah. what you mean by mindfulness.
1: Yeah, well, and it's so funny because uh, there was just a conference held in Berkeley, the um, Greater Good Science Center, on precisely this topic. Mindfulness and compassion, how they're the same, how they're different, and actually John Kabat-Zinn um, was talking and you know he really sees mindfulness and compassion as part it really is part and parcel of of the they're the, the really the same thing that mindfulness automatically um engenders compassion for self and others and i actually um really respectfully um you might say disagreed with them in that uh you know sometimes mindfulness is used in um, as an umbrella term to refer to all aspects of contemplative practice so that would include um you know, mindfulness of your present moment experience without judgment, also compassion for self and others, uh, and also wisdom is part of this as well, right, understanding that things are impermanent or that maybe we aren't as separate as we think we are. So I think you can use the term in multiple ways, um, the most common way it's used and the way I use it in my work is uh, paying attention to present moment experience without resistance, without judgment, and with real acceptance of what is. Um, you know, I personally think that that's, given that that definition is so ubiquitous in the field, it's not that helpful to use mindfulness as an umbrella term uh, because it's very confusing, especially if you're trying to, let's say, differentiate compassion and mindfulness in the brain. Uh, also, in teaching, okay, when I try, when I teach people self-compassion, I need to explain how it is different than mindfulness. Mindfulness is turning towards your present moment experience and accepting it as it is, whereas self-compassion means turning towards the experiencer, not the experience, but the person who's having the experience. And uh, wishing for the alleviation of suffering, at least as it unfolds in future moments, and they, they kind of form this bit of a paradox where we have to accept our experience, but we we hope for ourselves and we do what we can to help the future uh, moments unfold in a, a, a healthier, you know, manner that that um, entails less suffering.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, I actually at this conference laid out this whole model of these various aspects of mindfulness and how they're different but then how they feed into this overarching construct which you might say is something like having an open heart or an open mind or reaping the benefits of meditation and other types of contemplative practices. But in my model, I use a more narrow form of mindfulness which is really mindfulness of suffering and the ability to notice suffering and to accept the fact that suffering is occurring. And that's kind of, you might say, the prerequisite for our hearts to
0: respond with compassion. Well, let's talk about that. We notice what's happening in our present moment experience without judgment. But let's say what's happening is that we're quite anxious or maybe even having some type of panic response in the moment. So we're quite, we're upset about something, really upset. How do you stay mindful in those kinds of moments?
1: Right. Well, um, you know, often when we're very anxious, all of our attention and focus is on the perceived threat, what we think might happen. Um, Or, you know, any sort of problem. Most of our attention is uh, focused on how do we fix the problem? How do we get rid of it? We usually don't use any of our available working memory space uh, to reflect back to say, wow, this is really difficult right now. And if all our attention is on fixing the problem, worrying about the future, regretting the past, uh, we can't really give ourselves compassion. We, we can't recognize this is really difficult. What I need is a little TLC right now. Okay, So you have to be able to have some meta-awareness of the fact that This is a difficult moment, and I need some help to get through it, especially from myself. In terms of how to get people out of that uh, locked-in mind state, one of the reasons meditation is so incredibly helpful for developing things like mindfulness and compassion is that we really rewire the brain. Uh, Our brain gets in the habit of uh, seeing things from this more uh, aware, mindful, and compassionate perspective so that our brain automatically um, kind of kicks into that gear. Uh, for instance, I won't go into too much detail because you, you probably have neuroscientists on this show that know a lot more than I do, but we know that the mind in its resting state, uh, in its resting state, the default mode network is activated. Basically, um and this evolved for a good reason, when we have free time, when we aren't thinking of anything else, our, our mind tends to create a sense of self and project that sense of self in the past and the future looking for problems, Right? Um, regret about the past and depression or worry about the future anxiety. Um, So although this allowed us to protect ourselves and pass out our genes, evolutionarily speaking, uh, nowadays it pretty much just causes us to be unhappy most of the time. But with meditation, uh, what happens is we actually lower the activation of the default mode network. So our default mode, our habitual way of being, is actually uh, much more aware, uh, much less uh, oriented towards finding problems in the past and the future, right? So meditation is a great way, but even just developing the habit, reminding ourselves of to, to be aware, um, to be compassionate uh, in, in simple moments in everyday life can um, help this response kick in even when absor- we're absorbed in painful situations. But, you know, but it does take some work, let's face it. If your whole lifetime is spent in the habit of self-criticism, worry, um, depression, etc., it's not going to change by itself. You need some take some active steps to cultivate new habits, and it, it really can be done, but it does take some effort.
0: One of the things that I thought was quite interesting in your work was that you actually present research that shows that the attempt to suppress negative or unwanted thoughts, that it just doesn't work, that there's research that shows that. I mean, so we're feeling something we don't want to be feeling and we're thinking things we don't want to be thinking, but that taking suppression, trying to make those negative thoughts go away, that we actually can't do that. And of course, that's been my experience, but I never knew there was any research to show that.
1: Oh, yeah. There's a whole field of research on emotional avoidance that shows that the more we try to um, resist, the more it persists. <laughs> the classic experiment called the white bear thought experiment where the researchers had two groups of people and one group um, were told for the next five minutes, um, don't think about a white bear. And the other group, other group was told for the next five minutes, think as much as you can about a white bear. Right. So one group was kind of told to suppress the thought. The other group was allowed to express the thought. And then, um, you know, a little while later, they g- gave each group, you know, five minutes um, with no instructions other than, oh, whenever you think of a white bear, ring this little bell, <laughs> okay? And, of course, what they found is the group that didn't think about a white bear for the first five minutes thought about the white bear constantly in the next five minutes, whereas those who initially thought about the white bear um, thought of the bear much less often afterward, okay? So it's almost as if... Um, when we suppress a thought, it's, it it kind of builds pressure in the subconscious and, and uh, it kind of comes out one way or the other. Whereas if we, almost like, I don't know, I think of it like gas in a container or something, the more we squeeze it and resist it and try to shove it down... The stronger it is, and the more it 's likely to explode, whereas if we just open it up to the fresh air, everything kind of sorts itself out, and um, we don 't really contain it anymore actually that 's a good that 's a good metaphor. I just thought of that for
0: that.
1: <laughs> a good thought that uh, resistance and suppression is really a way of containing things, and when we contain things, it means we keep a hold of them. Whereas when we let go, we don't resist, we don't contain them, then they're free to just dissipate on their own.
0: I'm curious what you think then of, you know, a very common teaching that a lot of people say has been helpful. It's never really worked for me, but I'm curious, which is, you know, to work with affirmations. So if you're feeling, you know, beset with something, some negative experience, you can, you know, say the opposite and affirm the opposite and that that will work.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I do have some, some issues with that work. Um, uh, the research pretty much seems to doesn't really seem to support positive affirmations when they are combined with suppression of the negative. Right? So, in other words, just thinking about the positive actually can be quite helpful, because our minds tend to be so focused on the negative. Remembering that most situations also have a positive aspect can bring balance to our experience. So, being grateful for things that are good in our lives, or focusing on, you know, those nine positive comments on our work evaluation, and not just the one negative comment, that can really enhance well-being um, and help us see, see things in a more balanced way. But when, it, but when positive affirmations mean we aren't going to think about the negative, um, we're totally going to suppress these feelings, we aren't going to acknowledge them, then uh, it's more likely to backfire so that at some point those negative thoughts and feelings come out. And typically they come out uh, much stronger and they last much longer than they would have otherwise.
0: Now I have a, just a few more questions I want to try to squeeze in here. One okay. of the things that I learned from your work that I'd never heard before was how self-compassion can, for some people, be exceptionally difficult if there is a history of early sexual abuse. That that's a discovery that has been made. Can you explain that?
1: Yes. Um, and it's not just sexual abuse, any kind of abuse, including physical and emotional abuse. Uh, And Paul Gilbert has done some really great work in this area. He's a clinician who uh, focuses on self-compassion. But what happens when we are young and the people we love and trust in the world, you know, our parents or maybe some other caregivers abuse us, is that our caregiving attachment system, you know, which normally helps us feel soothed and comforted, actually gets intertwined with threat. Right? Um, that when we open the, when we open the door of our hearts and we, we are little, what we encountered, at least part of the time, was some sort of abuse or some sort of harm. So for, if that is, um, you know, your situation, then opening the door of your heart with self-compassion can feel very, very scary. And actually, there's a term for this my colleague Chris Germer uses called backdraft. Right, like if a fire's been, um, if there's a fire with a closed door, and then you open the door, the fire springs out really strongly. The same thing can happen for people whose uh, hearts have been closed, the door of their hearts have been closed because of this early betrayal by their caregivers. Um, and and this can be gotten through, but it does make having self compassion and also the process of learning self compassion. Uh, more difficult. Um, And actually, I recommend for people for whom there is a fairly strong history of abuse to go down the path of self-compassion with a trained therapist because sometimes things will come out really strongly, a lot of suppressed emotions and feelings, that you may need to get some help sorting through that.
0: Thank you, Kristen. Now, I know that one of your marriage vows is that each of you will help each other to be self-compassionate, that that's one of your vows, we'll help each other be self-compassionate. And I'm curious how that actually works in day-to-day life. How do you do that?
1: Right. And by the way, I should say, when we remember. (laughs) So that is an ideal that isn't always uh, met, but certainly more than if we didn't have that goal. Um, Really, it's, it's the commitment to, instead of trying to get your partner to meet all your own needs, uh, trying to meet a lot of your needs for yourself and also helping your partner to meet those needs by maybe um, reminding them to be self compassionate and not to be so hard on themselves, um, giving them the space and time they need to nurture themselves without being so demanding. And, and in fact, I just... I had published a research study looking at 100 couples in a a committed romantic relationship, and we found that self-compassion was a really powerful predictor of health in the relationship. So people who were more self-compassionate were rated by their partners as being more intimate, more caring, as granting more autonomy, being less controlling, being less verbally aggressive, and people were more satisfied with their relationship when their partners were self-compassionate, and it makes sense if you think about it. As I said, when you can meet a lot of your own needs, you aren't so dependent on your partner to meet your meet your needs. You don't have to be so controlling, uh, and that means you really have more emotional resources to give in the relationship. So it's wonderful if couples can agree that self-compassion is going to help the relationship, help help each party in the relationship. And really try to model and mutually support each other, and uh, being self-compassionate. Unfortunately, that means you got to be a little less, little less critical of your partner, <laughs> right? When they do something wrong, instead of just you know hitting them over the head, and saying you're terrible, I can't believe you did that. It means taking seriously that you want to help your partner uh, recognize that failure and imperfection is only human. Um that it's okay that they're loved and supported anyway,
0: well, in listening to you in this conversation, twice you've talked about how it's dependent upon remembering remembering yes. to be self compassionate. So how can we help ourselves remember?
1: yeah, and again, that is that is the mindfulness component how do we what how do we help ourselves be mindful, especially you know, of suffering. Uh, so, of course, as I mentioned, um, meditation is great. There's also other things you can do, like putting up little stickers around your house, you know, little notes to you know, remember to be mindful and self-compassionate of what's happening. Um, reading books so its something that we think about more often. Uh, some people have little bracelets, so switching it from one arm to the other whenever they notice that they're going through a difficult time, uh and need self compassion. Actually I have a dissertation student who did uh a study had a little intervention for students and that's one of the things she had them do was do some physical gesture when they were struggling or feeling inadequate to remind them that what they needed was self compassion in the moment. Uh so you know really any any creative way you can think of to just keep the idea of self compassion uh, in your in your you know, awareness, whatever that might be. There's there's a group, a great group called Compassionate that has refrigerator magnets, for instance, and also bracelets. So little things like that can be very helpful. Listening to your podcast. It's
0: a reminder. (laughs) For instance. It helps remind me. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And just one final question, Kristen. It's always curious to me how different people get different, mantles, if you will, or different torches to carry. And here, mm-hmm. you know, early in your life, you made this commitment to be the self-compassion researcher, even before you discovered that your son had autism. And I'm curious, when you look at here, you know, my life, it's such a, a curious thing, each one of us. And here, I'm the, the self-compassion woman. How did that happen? <laughs> Why did that happen? What's going on? What's your view of that?
1: Uh, it's it's kind of a mystery, isn't it? I mean, it's almost, well, not embarrassing, but I mean, it's very gratifying that uh, I started the research ball rolling and so many people are being helped by this. I can't even tell you how amazingly wonderful it is to get emails from people telling me this has really changed their life and, you know, seeing Over 200 200 journal articles and dissertations now focused on self-compassion. How did it happen? Um, You know, I don't know. It's just, it it helped me in my personal life at a time when I I really needed it, when I was stressed. It was actually just after a very messy divorce. And just that combined with doing the postdoc on self-esteem, seeing all the problems, and just really being, and also learning more about Buddhism and this. This open-hearted path that was making such a difference in my life—it just seemed like a really good idea at the time, uh, and uh, it just springboarded from there. I was, I'm a little bit like a bulldog sometimes when I get a very idea that I think is good. I, I, I persist, and I'm very dogged in my determination to see it through. And um, yeah, I just—I just kind of said, "Well." Why don't I do it? Why don't I define and research self-compassion? No one else has done it, at least in academia. Uh, it should be done. And I started the ball rolling, and it just, you know, the research turned out so well and so powerful and got more and more interested in the ideas, and I started noticing more and more how people really needed self-compassion. And at some point, I guess I became a bit of an evangelist because um, it just seemed to be a way that could really, really help people that actually was fairly simple. didn't take a lot of effort or time or money or resources. Um, but, you know, who knows how, how? why me and why this particular path? Maybe some of it's just luck, being at the right place at the right time.
0: Well, I'm grateful that you're carrying the self-compassion torch so brightly and so powerfully. Thank you so much.
1: Ah, well, thank you, and and thank you also for being such a light in the world and, and bringing these concepts of self-acceptance and open-heartedness to such a, such a large number of people. Um, it really is a, a pleasure and an honor to be on this show with you.
0: I've been speaking with Kristen Neff with Sounds True. Kristen has published a six-session audio series called Compassion Step-by-Step the proven power of being kind to yourself and it's chock full of guided practices and exercises and is a wonderful step-by-step program thanks everyone for listening soundstrue.com many voices one journey